Amen. If you can be seated. All right, glad you guys are here. Quite frankly, I'm glad I'm not alone this morning in this first service since we're having the picnic later. But let me let you in on some of the wisdom behind, even though it doesn't maybe feel like wisdom this morning, but some of the wisdom behind doing this today is that this is Promotion Sunday. This is the first day of our new Kids Way schedule, and there's a reality that it would be unfair of our teacher, unfair to our teachers who are beginning teaching not to give them every opportunity before we have potential for larger crowds next week to not give them an opportunity to step in and serve this week in their role and begin to work out kinks. And our new Kidsway director, Amanda Ziegelman, to give her a chance to really be in charge running the show today on a day where we're expecting less attendance and really see places where she can work. So this is much, you are serving her as much as getting blessed by some amazing preaching today. Just so, so there you go. All right, our Healthy Church series, we're, we're back in it. Now, to this point, we have focused heavily on the gospel work and the gospel word that God is doing in the church and how that affects and applies specifically to the membership. There are really, uh, the, the membership of the church is really where we've paid all of our attention to this point. But today, in 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter is going to specifically address pastors, elders of the church, and Right now, there might be in your mind a reason to just click out, well, I'm not a pastor, I'm not planning to be a pastor, and so this really doesn't apply to me, but, but let me, before we even begin, just kind of help you see why everyone in this church needs to hear this message. That first, every member needs to hear it because there is a reality that you, as members of the church, need to understand the responsibilities, the role and responsibility of pastors. There is a major misconception of what a pastor is in our current culture in our current church culture there's just a drastic misunderstanding some people many people look at the pastor pastorate as if it's just any like any other vocation like it's a set of credentials you can add to your name if you throw the the three letters rev in front of your name like rev seth or rev matt then then all of a sudden you're a pastor if you get the right degree in school then you're going to be a pastor and, and and that 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 vocational pursuit can be just like any anyone else. Like, I can just go be a lawyer, I can go be a doctor, I can go be a mechanic or a, a, a you know, whatever, or I can be a pastor. Like, I just want to, it sounds like an easy gig, you know. I mean, you work one day a week, why wouldn't you want to be a pastor, right? That's the idea. You guys didn't, you, did you get that? Work one day a week? I mean, that's what I signed up for. No, not really. But there's so, it's so much more than this. It goes so much deeper than that. For, for many, the role of a pastor is just about managing church calendars, managing church resources. Really, you're, you're everyone's personal assistant. Like the, We want to have our church life and our church events, and, and we want somebody to take care of that for us. So we hire somebody to sit at a building and take phone calls and make sure that when we need them, they're there. And that's the way many people treat their pastor. And for many, the role of a pastor mirrors the role of a CEO. Like they're the, the lead guy in a business. And much of that's because we have, called, we, have, we have structured our churches to look more like businesses than churches. When we look at the CEO and we think, well, I mean, the, the CEO, he, he makes all the decisions, he gets what he wants. And, and truly, in, in that model, the people that are under the CEO are his resource to make what happens, you know, like they're, they're his resource to get done what he wants to get done. 
And so many people look at a pastor really and, and they're resistant to their pastor because, well, you're just like every other CEO out there. You just want to use me for your end goal to make a name for yourself. And it's, that's unhealthy. It's an unhealthy view. The second reason that, that everyone in this church needs to hear this is really, we'll, we'll hone down that just a little bit. The second reason is that there are men sitting in this room who need to be considering what it looks like to be a pastor. There's a reality. Now, we need to, there's two perspectives here. We need to weed out those who sense a call to be a pastor because they have heard us talking about raising up leaders or stepping up to lead and using terminology like that. And that terminology is deceptive. Because what that does in a man's heart when he's, when he's leading or when he's, when he's stepping into this role, he begins to think, well, wait a minute, this, this is pretty, I've got some power here. And it feeds their flesh and it leads them to a place where I'm going to get my way, I'm going to get things done the right way like everybody should have been listening to me years ago and now we're going to get it right because here I am, I've got the power to assert some authority and I'm going to get it done the right way when, when really we need to weed those dudes out. That, in fact, there's a better perspective on Christian leadership. It's not to stand and lead or to stand in front, but it's to, to, to bow, to kneel, and serve, to wash feet. And we need men who are humble, who hear the call to, to humble themselves, to serve the church in this way. We need them to hear and sense God's call, to, to, to hear these words today and, and respond, and then not just respond and, and sit there and deal with it internally, but, but respond and let someone know, so let, let one of the pastors here at the church know so that we can begin to work this out with you. So our church needs to hear this message. Third, your pastors need to hear this word. There's a reality that Oftentimes we talk a lot about what the church needs to do, and those words apply to us as well. Don't, don't, don't hear me saying they don't. But brothers and sisters, your pastors need to hear this word, and you need to see them humbly submit under God's authority just in the same way we would call you to submit under his authority. You need to see them doing that. You need to see what that looks like. In some way, every one of us in this room need to hear what's said today. If we're going to continue in health and grow in healthiness in this church, leadership is key. Not, not, not leadership by the world standards, but good, godly leadership is vital to the health of the church. And Peter describes that to us now in 1 Peter 5. We'll begin reading in verse 1. We'll read through verse 4. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker of the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not, sh not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. That's certainly something to look forward to. Well, Peter opens this this. With, 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 by, by establishing again his authority and his identity as someone who can write this letter. He calls himself a fellow elder. So here I am, I'm an elder, I, I have a right, I have an understanding, I have a, a stance in which I can address the elders of the church. 
I have, I have a position that allows me to do that. Then he says that I'm a sufferer or I'm a witness to the suffering of Christ. And there's a lot of debate about this. I, I think that in, in some sense, Peter had the understanding that he knew Christ's suffering. He was a witness to it. I think in some sense, he understood that he was a witness for it, that not only had he experienced it, not only had he seen it, but that he had also spoken of it. He was a witness for it. But remember the context of this letter as well. I mean, this letter, Peter has just closed out chapter 4 with this call for us to suffer, to share in the sufferings of Christ. I think in some way, in some sense, we're, we're seeing that he's not only witnessed the suffering of Christ, he's not only witnessed to the suffering of Christ, but he is bearing witness of the suffering of Christ. And, and I think that because the way his third point, his third piece of his introduction is that I'm also one who partakes in the glory. Remember what he said. If you share in his sufferings, you will also partake in his glory in all that's coming. And so Peter's, Peter's establishing this perspective that, hey, I can say what I'm about to say. And I think it's important that we recognize that. I think it's important that we deal with it and then we stop and just think about why he did this. I mean, he opened the letter as he generally would or as anyone in the church generally would I'm Peter, an apostle. Paul did the same thing. It's the way that the letters would typically start with who's writing and, and their position in the church to establish authority and establish a right to write the things that they're going to say. But Peter here, not hasn't done it to this point, but, but here in the midst of this section, he takes time, he, he stops and he takes a moment to say, listen, what, what I'm about to say to you is important. I think he understands the gravity of what he's about to say, about, about what he's about to deal with. I, I think he understands how important this is to the church. And he knows the critical nature of the gospel for the church. He knows how desperately we need God's work through Jesus Christ. He knows it. And he's presented that all the way through the letter. He knows the, how critical it is that the church not just hear the word, but they, they obey the word, that we live a life of a repentance and that we live in holiness. He's called us to that all the way through this letter. He knows how important that is. He knows how important it is that, that we not just that, that we just not loosely assemble. He, he knows how important we are to one another in this world. He knows how the gathering of the church and the church together prioritizing one another for, for the good of each other, loving one another, offering hospitality to one another, serving one another. He knows how important that is, not just for the church, but for the world to see. He's presented that all the way through his letter. And he knows, he knows how critical God's leaders the elders are to the church. So he takes a moment and he says, listen, elders, I'm a fellow elder. This applies to me as much as it applies to you, but you listen to me. See, as, as important as a shepherd is to sheep, the pastor is to the church. Whether you think of it this way or not, whether you would agree with me or not, whether you like it or not, whether you want it or not, every Christian needs a pastor. You need a pastor, a pastor who loves Jesus more than they love themselves, who loves you as they love themselves, a pastor who's willing to give his life to see you led for the glory of God. You need a pastor who will serve you with his life and his, and his effort and his energy. You need a pastor who will stand beside you in the depth of darkness 
who won't abandon you or run away when it gets difficult. You need a pastor who won't hide out in an office, but who will stand by you in the midst of life. Christians need pastors. And in a day and age where we try to separate ourselves from the church and we don't need the church, Christian, don't run. You need a pastor. You need someone to stand in that role you were designed and you were saved with that in mind. God didn't install pastors. He didn't elevate and, and, or, or call pastors because they were unnecessary. You need a pastor. So as Peter writes, he understands the importance. And he takes a second to stop and say, this is so important. What I'm about to say is so important. Remember who I am. And he calls them out. And he gives us, he gives us instruction about that office, that position. And we're going to face it. We're going to look at it from three different perspectives. We're going to look at the title. We're going to look at the duty. And we're going to look at the attitude of the pastor. First, we'll deal with the title. He calls them elders. He says it, so I exhort the elders among you. He's speaking to a group of people. Now, <clears throat> there's a number of ways that this could be defined. There's a number of ways we could talk about this, but, but for our purposes here, and I think this is a good general, uh, general definition of elders for a church, would be spiritually mature men God has called, qualified, and equipped to lead the local church called, qualified, and equipped to lead the local church. The original word is presbyteros. It refers to an older man. Now, we're complementarian in our view here. Uh, just need to work this out just a little bit because it's different than many cases in church culture today. But, but this is a, a word that refers to an older man. There's words that refer to older women. He chose the one that refers to older men. And so we, we hold to a complementarian view because of the perspective of the Scripture. Now, it's, it's, it's just this one role that God has reserved for men. This is not a slight to women. It's not to say that women couldn't perform the task at hand. You need to get that. You need to understand there's a reality that there's women in our church that are, that, that are gifted teachers and that are gifted leaders and are gifted servants. We, you need to understand that. But for whatever reason, by His design... God has built men and women so that their genders complement one another. And in this case, this is a place where he's said, men, you are to lead. If you don't like it, you take it up with him. That's all I got for you. That's what we believe the scripture teaches. We, we, don't, we don't argue over that real hard. We're not out there shouting and calling everybody else heretics if they don't agree with us on that point. But we just say, hey, you know, one day you're going to talk to God and you can ask him. And, and you'll regret that you were wrong all your life. That's how we feel. So the elder, though, is a man. So the thing is, is that <clears throat> it does refer to an older man. The word refers to an older man. In one, one instance, in one source that I found, it, it said older man bearded. There you go. So if you need a good case, a biblical case, for a beard, just say, I'm inspiring to be an elder. I need to grow a beard. That's what we do. Some of us grow little short, sketchy ones that make you wonder if we can really do it. Others grow big, manly ones and make us jealous. But, no, I'm just kidding. I'll, I'll deal with that later. 
but, but the reality is we need to be careful as we picture this, as we gain this picture in our mind, that we're not perceiving an old gray-headed dude with a long gray beard that's hunched over from years of hard work. Yes, it does refer to an older man, but, but we would suggest that this signifies maturity more than mileage. That there's, that there's, a, that there's a significant inference to the maturity of a man more than his age. For example, let's just consider this just for a moment. I mean, think about when boys became men in this culture. In Jewish culture, it was at 13. We still celebrate, or we don't, but Jews still celebrate bar mitzvahs. That's when a Jewish boy becomes accountable to the law. He attains adulthood. For women, it's actually younger. They were 12 when they would attain adulthood. Do you want a 13-year-old boy leading your church? No. I'm not sure we want a 13-year-old boy doing much of anything. Well, I mean, listening, maybe, obeying. But the reality is, is, that, is, is that we don't want a 13-year-old that's just become a man to lead the church. In the Roman and Greek culture, it was somewhere between 12 and 16. Girls were married typically by the time they were 13. But... <laughs> Men were, were the, the, the boys were, were encouraged to wait on marriage, not because they weren't able to be married, but, but because they were encouraged, to, well, not encouraged, required to go and serve in the military. So wait to get married until after you know you're going to live, right? The reality is, is that, that in that day and age, a 25-year-old man would have been an older man, would have been seen someone by, I mean, that's the reality of it. And I picked 25 purposefully because the reality is in our church, we won't install an elder that's, that is less than 25 years old. We just, we're not going to do it. It's not that, it's not that we're going to install every 25-year-old man because, quite frankly, most 25-year-old men are still trying to figure out how to live life in our culture. But if he demonstrates the maturity and the character and the, and the competency that the Scriptures encourage, then... If he desires it, we will. Another perspective of this is it's not just about it's not just about the age that they lived in, but but just consider how how logically this would work itself out. I mean, just consider if if I'm Timothy walking into Ephesus and and I find this seventy year old man. I've been instructed by Paul to install elders in the church to to get everything organized and install elders and deacons. And, and I walk in, I find this seventy year old man, and I'm like, oh, you're an elder. That's perfect. I found you first thing. Well, you know, I've only been believing about 10 days. Are you going to install him as an elder over a 30-year-old who has been walking with the Lord for 10 years? Well, absolutely not. It's ludicrous. We'd be naive to think. We'd be naive to think that in some way that they walked into these cities and picked people specifically on their age. The truth is, in the, in the qualifications that Paul gave in Titus and Timothy, there was no mention of age. In, in both instances, he spoke of desire, their willingness to do the job, their Christian character, the fruit of spiritual maturity. That's, that's what he's referring to as he lists out the qualifications and their competency to teach others. Now, I don't think it's just an oversight that Paul doesn't put an age range. Like, you've got to hit the age of 30 or 40. I, I, I don't think it's an oversight. I think he's calling us to look more for spiritual maturity. Than age. I think it refers to maturity, not mileage. Second thing I think we th can learn from this title 
is that it signifies an office held by men, not a man. And this is different than most people grow up in church, at least in our culture and in our area. The, the vast majority of churches are a pastor with a deacon board. And so the pastor goes to the deacons to make all the decisions for the church and to lead the church. And that's a total misunderstanding of what the two roles are supposed to do. There's a total mis- misunderstanding of what the scripture demonstrates is the role of a pastor and a deacon. But it also denies the fact that, the, that in every case, save just a couple of specific examples, but in every case that this is referring to a specific church and it, it identifies the elders of a specific church, it's used in the plural form as if Peter and Paul both understood, and Luke, as he wrote Acts, as they understood that in every city, every local expression of God's universal church had multiple elders, multiple men who would lead the church. It signifies an office uh, held by men, not a man. I mean, just consider if it hadn't been this way. I mean, here the apostles are. They start with about 120 at the beginning of Acts. There's 12 of them. And there's, there's about 120 believers, it says. Well, they go out one day, the Holy Spirit falls on them ten days after Jesus uh, ascends into heaven. The Holy Spirit falls on them, and the whole congregation begins to prophesy in, in, uh, in ways that when people hear it, they're understanding it in their own language. Now, I don't know if that means they were speaking in their own language or they were just able to interpret the words that they were hearing. I, all I know is that they were hearing it miraculously. And here they are from all over the area. It just happened to be, the day the Holy Spirit falls, it just happens to be a holiday. And so people are from in, from out of town. They're all over the place, from, from everywhere. And they come in to this city, and then they see this ruckus, and they hear the prophecies of God's glory and goodness, and they start to make excuses for it. But Peter stands up in the middle of it and preaches one powerfully, one, one Holy Spirit-empowered message and immediately that day the the church grows by three thousand people imagine if this is one guy in his deacon board imagine how, how that just continues to blow up and how if it just depends on one guy really to to lead the church in the way that peter's calling them to i mean here's the reality that the next time they count they realize that the church has grown by five thousand men and that's not counting the women it's just the men and then in, in Acts chapter 5, it says that the church is growing faster than ever, that the Holy Spirit is doing so many miracles, and there's so much happening that, that it is growing in unprecedented rates and that multitudes, multitudes. Now, to this point, they've counted. Why are they not counting the multitudes? I, I think because it's just too much for them to keep up with. And suddenly the apostles realize we can't do this by ourselves, and so they begin to enlist leaders. And we know that in Jerusalem, there were elders installed in the church it took a while it took a little bit it didn't happen immediately it took a little while there's elders installed more than one elder in the jewish church in the church in jerusalem more than one elder installed in ephesus and philippi paul and barnabas say it says in acts that paul and barnabas installed elders in every church that they started this is not a job for one man to do it's dangerous for one man to try it The reality is this is intended for men to do together for the glory of God and the good of his church. That's the title, elders. Well, what do elders do? What is their duty? 
the duty of elders is to pastor the local church that you belong to, not the church you dream of leading. Shepherd the flock of God among you. That's the sheep you can see. That's the ones you can touch. That's the ones you can interact with. The word translated here, shepherd, is where we get the term pastor, and that's why we use them interchangeably. You you call me pastor, and I'm fine with that. You don't have to call me anything else, but the reality is you can call me my name, but if you call me pastor, you're speaking less about my title and more about my responsibility towards you. It's to be a shepherd. It's not, it's not to say that, that God won't at some point use some pastors, some elders, as a voice that carries across the large church. Like John Piper, I mean, the, the church at large. John Piper has taught and led in one church, but his voice has carried across churches all across the world. But the call is not to build that ministry. The call is to pastor this Church, the one that you belong to, the one that you're in. The reality is that churches suffer many times because pastors are not pastoring the church they're in. They're looking for the next church they want to be a part of. They're looking for the next book deal so that they can make a name for themselves. They're looking for their next opportunity. And he's saying, shepherd this church, the one you're in. Shepherd this one. Don't be looking off for the next better, uh, more, more reliable, more trustworthy, more uh, easy flock to shepherd, pastor the church that you're in. What does that mean exactly? We break it down into four things. Know, feed, lead, and protect. Know the church. Know and care for the church. Know them. Shepherds can't shepherd sheep from a distance. Maybe you heard the story of happened in Turkey about, back, I think back in like 2005, there was a, a, a group of shepherds that sat down and decided they were going to leave the sheep to graze, and they sat down and ate breakfast together. One sheep walked off a cliff, and 1,500 followed him, right? So who are we going to blame? And a lot of people point at the sheep, and they say, those are dumb animals. I think it says more about the shepherds. I think it, I, I think it really reveals more about the shepherds who aren't out shepherding the sheep. They're so self-absorbed, so self-concerned that rather than taking shifts, they'd rather sit down and have breakfast together. They're so concerned for themselves and so uncaring and unconcerned for the sheep that they'd rather sit down and have breakfast together. 450 of them died as the pile builds up that begins to break the falls of the one behind it. Ends up to be like a 72000 almost almost $100,000 loss for the sheep owners. These weren't even the people who owned the sheep. We cannot pastor sheep from a distance. We have to be involved. We have to be close. Listen, this, this, is where, this is where it gets real. Being a shepherd is not a title of dignity. It's a call to get down in the muck, to get your hands dirty, to be willing, if necessary, to pick them up and carry them. No the sheep know the church feed the church give them good spiritual food it's not a coincidence i don't think it's a coincidence that the one qualification for elders that is not a moral qualification is the ability to teach 
But when we hire pastors in this culture, when we look for pastors in this culture, we typically look for their skills and their competencies to lead organizations. Again, because we are about building businesses and not churches. Now, there's a reality that the part of the life and part of the responsibility of a pastor, of an elder, is to make some business decisions, is to deal with the business of the church. But that is not his priority, nor should it be. Listen, it is primarily our responsibility to ensure that you are fed from the food that, that, that comes from the word, that you are given meat, not necessarily milk. If you need milk, we get it to you. But when you're ready for meat, we're ensuring that you're getting it. Listen, when the, when the demands of ministry were growing, when, when the demands and the, and the pressure of ministry were growing and the apostles began to see that their primary responsibilities of prayer and ministry of the word, that's preaching of the word, when they saw that that was being threatened and encroached upon by the, by the needs of the church, they stepped back and said, we can't do this. Somebody else has to take care of that. We have got to focus on preaching and prayer. And there's a reality, brothers and sisters, that my job is not to make sure that, that you know all the events in the church. Matt's job is not to make sure that you know all the events in the church. We need to be responsible for helping to plan and organize and manage. Our job is to make sure that you hear the word. Dave, Matt, and I, our job is not to take care of them in the sense that, that we walk alongside them and do every little thing for them. Brothers, our job is to give them the word. That's our primary responsibility. That means we need to be in the word. Don't misunderstand. Pastors and aspiring pastors, what the church needs from you is not your wit, is not your savvy business sense, is not your skills. Can we use them? Yes. What they need from you is to teach them God's word that they might be spiritually nourished and healthy Christians prepared for the days ahead, prepared to live the life that they've got to live in this world, prepared to deal with the circumstances that are coming to them. That's our primary role. Lead the church. So we know the church, we feed the church, and we lead the church. Show them how to follow God's lead. When Peter calls the pastors to shepherd the flock, exercise, there's, there's a sense of leadership there. There's a sense of understanding that you've got to be kind of watching them and watching ahead. You've got to know where the next pasture is. You've got to know where the next water source is. You've got to be prepared for them because sheep are heads down. They're like eating the grass and drinking the water. They're, they're not out looking around for the, you know, if, 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 a, if, a, if, a, if, if a wolf comes along, they find out. But likely only because they're neighbor got ate up, you know. There's a reality. There's a sense that we have to be looking out. But here's, here's the perspective I think. I, I think, again, I, I don't, I don't want to de de deny that there's a business to this and a management to this and a, and a, uh, a sense that we, we take care of church business. I don't want to deny that. I don't think that's what Peter has in mind because he's not writing to a church that looks like they do today. He's writing to a church that's really very organic and, and, and doesn't have the structures and systems that we build in today. I, I think he's intending the, the sheep to be 
overseen by shepherds who are looking up at Jesus, who are saying, I see Jesus, and I know where to go to follow him. And then they're, they're willing to take a look back and say, that sheep isn't following Jesus, but hey, come sheep, come, come and follow me, and I'll shepherd you, so follow me as I follow Christ. You see, the sense is not that we sit around and make sure that bills are paid, although we need to do that, but that the sense is, is that we're so concerned with where Christ is and where His church is that we're willing to stand in the middle and say, come and follow me as I follow Christ. That's the call of a shepherd. You see, we're not, we're, we're not people who get to do this on our own. These are God's sheep. Shepherd the flock of God among you. They belong to someone else. They belong to Him. We are simply under shepherds. We are called to to follow His lead, to go where He calls us to go, and to be so concerned, to know the sheep so well, to to be so involved that we can say, hey, come follow me as I follow Christ. There's one of the first lessons you learn in preaching classes is not just to exegete the scripture but also exegete the congregation what that simply means is that as a preacher you're to study and draw the meaning out of the scripture you're not supposed to you're not supposed to put your 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 thoughts or intentions on it you're supposed to draw the meaning out of scripture but then you exegete the congregation so that you know how they need the scripture applied you see i can stand up here and talk all day but if i don't know you if matt or dave or chris doesn't know you We don't get involved with you. It's impossible for us to know what you need from the Word. We have to know you. We have to know the Scripture. We have to follow Christ and call you to follow us as we follow Him. Lead the church. Show them how to follow God's lead. And then finally, he says, I I think in in shepherding, the, the fourth perspective would be to protect the church. Keep them from being deceived by giving them the truth. Now truly, in one sense, this is built out from all of the other perspectives already. This is not some independent perspective. It's not an independent responsibility of the shepherd to protect the church. As we we get to know them, as we care for them and love them as Christ has loved the church, as we feed them with the truth, as we teach them the word, as we get the word to them, and, and we lead the church to follow Christ, this will ultimately protect them. This will ultimately protect you. It will ultimately serve you and keep you from falling into deception from false teachers. The reality is I don't have time to tell you about all the ways that we could teach the word incorrectly. There's a number of people out in the world today that teach the word horribly. We would call them false teachers because they're totally undermining the truth of the gospel. They're totally calling you to to save yourself or to keep yourself safe. Those are heretical statements. Those are heretical ideas. But I can teach you the truth. I can show you what the truth is so that when you hear the lie, you, you, you hear it. You're like, whoa, that's a lie. That's not what the Bible... I know that's not what the Bible says because my pastors taught me the word. That's not how Christians should act because my pastors set the example for me. That's not how they act. That, that's the call. But the protection we offer doesn't end at teaching. It includes prayer. It includes us praying. Brother pastors, when we are not teaching, we should be praying. 
We are fighting a spiritual war. We need spiritual power and we need spiritual protection. We need to know the word. And as pastors, we need to be teaching it. But when we aren't, we need to be praying for our people. Praying for the people that God has placed us among. To lead, to feed, to know, and to protect. I think it's important that Paul said at the, at the end of his call in Ephesians 6 to put on the spiritual armor. He doesn't say go out and fight. He says now praying at all times with all prayers. Certainly, church, please be praying for your pastors. But pastors, be praying for this church. And finally, the attitude. So we've seen the title. We've seen how it speaks to us, how it informs us. We've seen the duty of the, the pastor and now the attitude. The good pastor serves God and his people eagerly by setting an example for the church to follow until Jesus returns. And we get that, I get that, ultimately from what he said in the verses that follow. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Lead them, feed them, know them, <laughs> protect them. Not under compulsion, not under compulsion, not being your arm twisted into it, not me walking up to somebody in the congregation and saying, hey, we need another elder in, in the church, so why don't you come and do it? And if you don't, I'm going to make you feel bad for it, so, so come on. Not under compulsion because you have to, but because you've been called to. Because you've been seeing God's call in your life, on your life. You, you determine and recognize that you have been called to do this. Not because, not under compulsion, but willingly. See, you see the contrast, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not, not, not to make a name for yourself, not, not to get your name on some billboard or some website as a pastor, not to have a podcast put out on an internet, not because in some way you think you're going to get an easy job that pays you a few bucks. If you think the pastor is your way to fame and, and uh, fortune, sit down. That's not what we need. And if a pastor won't be a pastor for other than just a, a large sum of cash, I'm not saying churches shouldn't bless. I'm not saying that churches shouldn't have a desire to honor their pastor if they can. Don't hear me saying that saying if it's the desire of the pastor that they only want money or fame or, or notoriety then that pastor needs to sit down eagerly longing for it wanting to do it desiring it you see that's what we're called to that's what we're called to if it's anything else go find a job at McDonald's you know they're hiring that that's an easy place for you to get a job go go there long to serve the church in this way not forcing them to action. What does he say? He says this. He says, not under compulsion, not for sordid gain, not for shameful gain, not domineering over those in your charge. Now, this is a place where I'm just going to be honest. I, I struggle. I can be heavy-handed at times. Now, it's not my intention. It's part of the nature that I work against, my sinful nature that I fight diligently against. When I was in the military, it was really easy to lead because when you commanded, they had to obey or they went to jail. When they 
in, in, in business, when I was running a shop, an aviation facility, when they didn't obey, they got fired. It's not the same in the church. It's a much different game. A much different set of circumstances. A much different understanding of what it is to lead. Not domineering. In the same way that we're not to be stepping into this role under compulsion, we're not to be calling our sheep to serve under compulsion. We're not to put a weight on them that we're supposed to not, not supposed to be carrying either. The reality is, and maybe I, I heard this, I, I looked for the source, I, I heard this illustration, I don't know if it's true or not, the, the guy said it like it was true, I heard it and I went and looked for it, I couldn't find it, so it, it's an illustration. A guy was on a vacation, he was taking a tour and him and his family were taking a tour, and they climbed on the bus, and the tour guide was talking about all the things that they would see, and one of the things he pointed out they would see was they were going to see a bunch of sheep being shepherded. And he said, one thing you'll note is that you'll always see the shepherd in front of the sheep. So they're going along, and they see some of that, and they come along, and they see at one point they come to this, to this flock of sheep, and what appears to be the shepherds behind them, hollering and directing and corralling and, and pushing them in a direction that they don't want to go. And somebody on the bus, I think it was somebody in this guy's family, somebody on the bus says something to the, to the tour guide. He stops the bus, he gets out, goes talks to the guy, gets back on, starts up, goes down the road, and he turns and tells him what he found out. That, that guy wasn't a shepherd, he was a butcher. There's a distinction there, right? There's a reality, pastors. Our call is not to be heavy-handed. Our call is not to, to heap guilt on sheep. Our, our, our call is not to force them into submission. Our call is to lead them by example. There's a very difficult lesson that I am learning still today. I've heard it since the first day we started, and I'm still learning it today. The church will only be where you lead it. So where are we leading the church? What are we leading them to do? What example are we setting for them? We pastors are servants of God for the good of his people. Aspiring pastors, this is no small thing. It's no small task. It is vital and important to the church. Church members, this is our call for you. And I can assure you, I can assure you that while we are not perfect, while we will make mistakes, while we will make decisions that, that you don't understand, you don't even necessarily totally agree with, I promise you, I assure you that our heart is for your good. We long for you to know the glory of God. We long for you to know the fruit that increases to your credit when you give up yourself and give up this life that you might follow God. We long for you to know the joy and satisfaction and peace and contentment that comes with not being given things in this world, but being part of the kingdom of God. We long for you to know the good news of the gospel so that it feeds your soul. We long for you to be fed with the truth that you might be strong and healthy. I assure you, I am a broken man. 
has been put together in the gospel. And every pastor that serves this church is the same. But because of what he's done in us, we long for your good. And so let me just close now with the very first part of verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Pastoring a church is a two-way street. We can lead all day. We can do our part. But it requires a willingness to follow. So please, church, brothers and sisters in Christ, know our hearts, hear our hearts, understand what we're striving to do. And as we follow Christ, come follow us. Let's pray. Father, you are gracious to us, your Son, Jesus, you have been so good. The good shepherd who loves his sheep, who, who doesn't lose a sheep, who, who no one can snatch a sheep away from. I am always humbled by this call. I recognize my own unworthiness. So, Father, I pray for strength for myself and for my brother pastors. Pray for vision and understanding. I pray for those in the room that aspire to be a pastor but have sat silent. Father, I pray against those that aspire to be a pastor to make a name for themselves. Father, I ask for this church that you would help them know and sense tangibly your love through the love of the men that you've called to lead in this church. It's all these things I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.